Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Uh, We appreciate you being here and spending time with us as we talk about cool things with cool people. And on that note, my guest today, who fits that entire idea of cool, cool people doing cool things, Amishi Takalkar. I am so sorry. I kind of screwed up there for a minute. So my apologies, Amishi, for that. It's a cool last name. So now since I just screwed it up, why don't you introduce yourself, <laughs> save me from further embarrassment, and we'll go from there. Well, you you made it up by you know calling me cool three times, Lenny. So I'm going to play that over and over again for my teenage daughters because uh, at least somebody finds me cool these days. So no worries about that. So for uh, everyone, I am Amishi Takakar, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Nailbiter. Very honored to be here. Excited to be talking to you, Lenny. Thank you for that. Let's talk about Nailbiter, for those who don't know. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what the company does, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so just from our perspective, right, I'll start off with a little bit of my background because it kind of flows well into what we are doing at Nailbiter. So I grew up in uh, Mumbai, India, and my first job out of school was at MTV. So I am uh, I was an aspiring VJ. Clearly, I didn't make it. And one of the things that I was exposed to there was data and research because it was a startup at that point. Everyone was wearing a lot of hats. And having that startup environment in India when the channel launched, getting exposed to data was something that I just started gravitating towards and then eventually made my way here to the U.S. and decided to do my master's in marketing research. So like a lot of other researchers who kind of fall into market research versus, you know, pursue it as a career, mine was a mix of both where I landed here, but with some intention in mind that this is something that I genuinely enjoy and like. My first job out of my master's was at Frito-Lay, which is the first time I was exposed to CPG and the research that we do and the learnings that we get, right? And my first study that I did there was an ethnography. It was for Doritos and Cheetos. This was many, many years ago, so it's no secret by any means. I'm not sharing any confidential data here. The first study was an ethnography, and I loved the fact that we could actually see teenagers shopping and consuming these products and learning from them. And what happened next was even more interesting because I'm new to you know the whole industry, and you know these are my first few research projects. We had to validate everything that we saw using surveys online surveys, right? And so as I'm kind of looking at that survey questionnaire and we are asking all these questions on behaviors to quantify them in my head, I'm going, hmm, I don't know if I would be able to answer these accurately, to be honest. I'll do my best, but I don't genuinely believe, you know, that people are going to remember the first time they bought a certain flavor and what did they think about it and the emotions that came with them, right? And that kind of stayed in my head for the longest time because at the age of 22, 23, you really 
can do much even if you have these burning questions, right? You're just kind of going with the flow. Fast forward, I went from the client side to the vendor side. I was at Affinova and it got acquired by Nielsen. And that's Affinova is where me and my co-founder Amit, we were talking behavioral, we were talking technology, we were talking about how this is something that the industry still not been able to address quantitatively. Like anything that we want to watch or behaviors, they are still qualitative in nature. How can we do this? How can we make behavioral scalable? That was like the biggest question. And that's where Nailbiter came to be, where we said that smartphones, everyone has an iPhone or a Samsung phone. They're taking videos. How can we use this technology to collect behavioral data at scale and convert it into metrics, right? And that's where the word behavioral video metrics comes from because we are watching these shoppers and consumers making purchase decisions at shelf, online, looking at what they're seeing, but also what they're saying, right? Combining those two data points and then telling our clients not just what is happening, but why it's happening and that too at scale. That's very cool. Now, I want to go back and talk about being a potential VJ because that's just, <laughs> I've never met anybody who is going to be a VJ. Being a child of the 80s, you say MTV and the VJ and like, Okay, that defined my life, probably, unfortunately, um, <laughs> for a very long time. But we'll leave that alone. That's, that's a story for another time. That's, uh, that's great background. Before we dive in, actually, one more question. Where did you get your master's uh, in market research? University of Texas at Arlington. So okay. I was in Dallas, Texas for a couple of years. I started in Austin and then moved to Dallas. And yeah, haven't looked back. Love market research. Love everything market research. Okay. Yeah. The UTA program is really great. So I'm on the board of both the Michigan State and the University of Georgia programs. And so I, I love it when we talk to somebody who's a graduate of one of those. So just a total aside, that's great. Now, the challenge with doing any type of, of unstructured data at scale, and effectively that's you know video analytics, is primarily the, uh, I mean, the computing power is a piece of it. Plus, the algorithms are always changing. So have you found that it's far easier and accepted to do that today than it was five years ago, simply because both our ability to process information as well as the algorithms to make that analysis easier have just progressed that much? That is an awesome question. And thank you for asking that. The technology has developed plenty, but not to the extent where we can just rely on AI and, you know, all these algorithms to uncover metrics from these videos. If I, you know, today I can collect 300 videos and go to a client and say, here, look at all your shoppers, you know, doing all these things. But to your point that, what do I do with that if I'm the client, right? And when I put my client hat on, I want to have very specific metrics and data points that I can track, not just for my brand or for my category, but across my categories and over a period of time. So we are doing the hard work for them and we're not just using technology to do this. Every video that we get, there is some technology part to it, which helps us analyze some of the things that are happening. But these videos are videos made by people like you, me, my neighbor. So they're not perfect by any means. So today technology is not advanced enough where it can actually figure out what brand is on the shelf or when they're using the word lace, is that being used as a verb or is that being used as a brand proper now, right? 
So that's where humans come in. So every video is watched by a human being and it is being tagged for all the different things that are happening. And that's what makes the data solid, reliable, right? And quality is kept intact because technology can only do so much for us that human intervention is needed 100% to make sure that we understand the nuances that come with these videos. Now, are you using that data, uh, that human curation to become a training set to build the AI that will be able to carry more of the load. Correct. Exactly. So that's where the algorithms are coming from and things like that, because now we've collected hundreds of thousands of videos and there are some things, some models that we've built on our end that can be used to predict certain things. But again, same thing. We use the technology to help us, but we are not relying on technology to do what we do in terms of the final output. Okay, very cool. I actually have to do a, uh, a webinar when we're, we're done with this podcast with Canvas text analytics platform. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved in unstructured data analytics for most of my career as kind of a side thing. And I, point is, I mean, text analytics has come a long way. I would say that video and voice analytics are probably five years behind where text analytics has gotten to at this point. Do you think that's accurate? Yes, yes, it is. I think text is definitely much more easier because it's provided. It's it is to your point, you know, it's something that's written and you can analyze it with voice and video. You're allowing people to be natural and do what they do. You're not forcing them to get their thoughts in 10 words that they want to type somewhere. Right. And that's what makes it unique. We want while we want to use these videos to do more and in an easier way. We don't want to lose the part around the the insight and the deep insight actually that comes with people just doing what they do and keeping it as natural as they could be. Are you incorporating any non-conscious measurement like facial coding or even uh, tonal analysis into the process? The one thing that makes us unique and scalable is the fact that we don't require our shoppers and consumers to show their faces. We want to keep that they can be anonymous. We just, we need the video of the shelf because that's where we are collecting the data from. We do use words and expressions that they may be using as a part of their narrative to analyze certain things around perceptions and how are they feeling and are they confused and are they, you know, struggling to find the right product. But we kind of limit it to that. We're not using facial recognition techniques or seeing if they are frowning or smiling to then further decode it. Okay. Now, for Nailbiter, are the the bulk of your projects kind of standalone? They're engaging with you. It's kind of a shopper insights, path to purchase, I would assume. Those are the primary uses. Or is it ever an augmentation to another type of project, maybe a mystery shop or, or you know, qualitative? So we work with consumer insights as well as shopper insights, both teams. We started off as being more standalone projects and newer clients, when they engage with us, they start off as engaging with standalone projects where they have a specific question in mind. They want to uncover how their shoppers are you know, shopping for their categories at a certain retailer, whether it's in-store or online, what's working, what's not working, or there is a new product launch and the client wants to understand why it may not be doing as well as they thought it would do and uncover those barriers at at shelf, right? So those are standalone. But, but as clients start to see our metrics and learn our data, what we are starting to see is that they want longer term engagement. So they start off by 
starting with that one point in time data, but then converting it into more of, let me track this again over a period of time to understand how that's changing. So um, for example, inflation, this was, you know, we had COVID and shopper behaviors changed and consumer behaviors changed. And then everything, you know, seemed to be like, you know, returning back to normal. And then now we have, we have this inflation and all prices going up and shoppers, the way they react, the way they make their choices is changing. So our clients who've been working with us since the last three years that have actually been able to see over the course of, you know, this time, how shopper behaviors have just evolved and changed and some of them permanently so, right? Not just a point in time. And they've been able to then take actions against it to make sure they don't lose what they had or capitalize on this information to grab more baskets, if you will. The one thing that we're doing with some of our clients is more of always on platform. So basically, we will kick it off in the beginning of the year. We are collecting videos for them for their categories across their retailers all through the year. So we become their eyes and ears on the ground. So rather than a question and answer approach, we are actually answering questions that they did not even know existed. So we are able to give them insights and we're going to tell, we are able to tell them that, Hey, did you know XYZ is happening before they even see it in their sales data that, Hey, what happened? Why, you know, what's this new product and why is it like, how is it cannibalizing my brand? Right. So the always on approach is something that clients are really, really appreciating because we are their eyes and ears on the ground. We are more of, you know, your smoke detector versus a firefighter. So that's the role that we are playing in their business today, which, which works for both parties because it becomes very efficient. It becomes something that you don't have to wait a long time to get that data. It's just always on. Have you built your own panel or community of consumers that are all, they're doing that always on process or are you recruiting from other sources? Yeah, it's we do what we call this kind of just-in-time recruiting. So while we do have some panel that we can tap into if we if we need to, we generally use social media and get our app on their phones and we get their shopping list. We know what they're planning to shop where, whether it's in-store, whether it's online. So they're just answering a few questions. And then next time they're in the store, they're just being asked to make a video if this is a category that they're that was on their list. So that's for like, from the planned shopping perspective, we are able to get that. And that's what makes us scalable. We are right now working pretty much all over the world. So it allows us to scale without having to have our own panel and just kind of tapping into that. That is very cool. Now, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit because I, I think it's fascinating that you started as, uh, as a wannabe VJ, moved into, into data, and... I would characterize what you're doing as the, the quantification of human behavior, right? Using video as the method or the tool to do that. So tell me about that path of what made those dots connect for you to get to that, that point where you're quantifying human behavior. Because I, I would think that mu music is a very human expression. So was that where things started to connect for you at that point? Yeah, look, I think it was, you know, when you're a VJ, you're starting to want to talk about things that connect with people. You want it to be sticky. You want it to be relevant. You want it to be something that is unique, right? At the same time, you don't want to be saying the same thing that everybody else is talking about. So that's where the piece started. Now, one of the things that I was doing at MTV, which was interesting for me because I wanted to do it, was when it was starting up, 
we had to go to advertisers and get them to buy our spots so that you know we could obviously we, we wanted that right and to that end we had to make sure we had the right audience that we were able to attract using these shows so there were just so many consumer related dynamics that were happening in just that one role that you want to get the right audience listening to the shows you want to make sure that you know the advertisers know that this is the audience you're attracting which means they'll bring the brands that you want to be associated with the you know youth icon and youth brand and things like that and so that's where the whole you know consumer aspect kind of fit in right and that's where in that process of listening to advertisers and listening to these conversations the whole brand element came into it and so that's basically where i'm like oh i love numbers that's what it uh, ended up being where i would be you know at one point you're looking at the trps but at the other point you're also looking at the revenue that it's bringing in and that kind of led to data and numbers and something that you know it was kind of it's hard to explain but it just felt very natural okay now let's spin that off a little bit more that you are a rare thing in the inside space you are a female person of color founder of a tech company you know, I mean, that's like, wow, you know, you're the, the very low incidence. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about that. What has that been like to combine, you know, that experience of, of growing up in Mumbai and, and you know, this love of, of understanding and data and building this business in a arena where you don't have a lot of peers from an experiential and background standpoint? Uh, it it has been a very interesting journey. Have, had you asked me when I was at MTV where you see yourself 20 years from now, I would definitely not be saying this is what I would be doing. This would have not been on the list at all. But what I would say is that the start was very interesting because there was a little bit of a surprise shock factor for me because what I learned is generally... As a female, you have to fight harder to get the respect than your equivalent male counterpart, right? It is just the way it is. I mean, I'll give you this example, which has happened multiple times, right? Which is why I remember it so well. Amit, who's my co-founder, he's from India as well. Uh, we are similar age, right? We would be interviewing candidates. And at that point in the early days, we would do joint interviews and when the candidate would talk to us, they would address Amit as Mr. Amit or Sir, and I was always Amishi. Now, I would humor myself and say it's because I look younger, and so that's why they're calling me Amishi. But that was not the case. That's the world that we live in and that we are in, right? And it is changing slowly, but I do feel that as women, we do have to fight harder and work harder, you know, to drive the change. And that's where I believe that I want to be that change. So if you look at the nail biter leadership team today, there is a lot of women, women of color, and we are where we are because of them. We would not be here because the diversity of thought, the diversity of just attitude and the way things work has definitely helped us a lot. Right. And when I say diversity, I don't just mean it has to be a woman or a female or a certain age, right? I think there is also diversity of location, right? When we interview people, we don't look at where they are based or what time zone they are in. If they are good for the job and if they can add value to the company, we want them. We've been global for a long, long time only because of that attitude, because in our minds, like Amit and I are aligned there, which is 
we have to find the right person of the job but we want to give equal opportunity to everyone and we don't want to go with preconceived notions of you know a certain gender or a certain age or a certain color is going to bring these kind of skills to the table i do joke with my team that you know it's funny my husband is not a software engineer i'm not a software engineer but anytime people see me the first converse like the first instinct is to talk code i don't speak code i know nothing about computer engineering <laughs> but that's that's the world we are in right and uh, it has it has been an interesting and a fascinating journey the one group that i feel like embraced this whole decision of you know starting the company and being the ceo was clients and i was very happy to see that because they've i've been working with clients for the last 10 years and they've seen they know me they've seen me and so they were the last ones to be surprised they were like we knew this was coming like you've been we've seen you we've seen everything that you've accomplished so it was not a surprise to them at all but to everyone else it was quite a surprise when they saw me wanting to do what i do right now to your point there is value in diversity of experience of diversity of thought in all of its permutations right absolutely believe that 100% so i would say that we have a challenge of recruitment right how do we get more people with that diversity of experience and in all of its permutations to come into the industry or else we're just kind of stuck with the people that we attract and historically for whatever reason that is majority been you know old white people like me so any thoughts on that uh well first whether you you agree or disagree and then secondly any thoughts on what we could do to get more people like you more more amishis to engage and and help us grow in all ways yeah look i uh, i'll say this the market research industry is one industry where i've seen more women like when you look on the client side and you look at the client teams or when you look at a company like nail biter just naturally i feel like women i'm i won't generalize but tend to be more empathetic and so getting that and market research is kind of about that is understanding the point of you creating the right survey creating the right whatever it is approach that you're creating to keep that consumer and shopper lens in mind so there are a lot of females in our industry however to your point when we look at the leadership that proportion is lost most of these women are not at in that in those leadership roles if you will and that's where my um I I would probably say that we just need to be more open in the fact that and I'm I'm guilty of this too that when I used to think about leaders I would think of charismatic talk a big game visionaries those are the ones who should be my leaders but if all leaders were visionaries nothing would get done so from that perspective if we kind of open our minds to the fact that a person may not look a certain way or talk a certain way but they may actually have some really good solid ideas that takes them to that leadership level we should kind of push to grow them right i think that's what is needed my advice to women would be that if a lot of us are doing those jobs we just don't talk about them so when it's it's general tendency or my observation that when a male does something it's the way they talk about it it's a square but when a woman does it it tends to be a square root they understate everything that they do and so that's where i would while you know we want people like you to be 
seeking women leaders. I want women to speak up and talk about the work that they're doing and speak from the front. Don't hide. Don't don't undermine what you're doing. Ask for it, right? If you're doing it, own it, talk about it and ask for more because you do not get if you don't ask. I strongly believe in that, that if you're expecting the world to recognize what you're doing magically and give you what you deserve, then you might be waiting. Then then you're kind of relying on the other person's observational skills to get you to the next level. But it's really important to ask if you want to grow. I agree. The most important people in my life, both from a personal level and a business level, the most inspirational, the ones who who drive me in every way are all females, strong females, you know, will kick my butt, right? If if I'm not doing what I need to do and thank God for them. So that propensity to not step up or to put yourself out there and, and ask, is that a, is that a cultural issue? Is it just a, is it something that we need to do to help reinforce for, for folks of look, there's everyone needs to just, just go for it, right? Go for what you what you want to do, and our job is to support that. How do we how do we overcome that issue? Yeah, I think uh, it is. I, what I want women to do is learn from their male counterparts, right? These are some things that we could learn. I'm not saying women are perfect, and I know they want to step up. I know they probably are halfway there already. It's just about kind of raising your hand and asking for it. That this is what I want, and articulating it, voicing it, and you know, wanting it, right? I think there is a little bit of cultural thing as well. I'll tell you this, growing up in India, uh, there's these there are these sayings or these teachings that you're told that, you know, do the effort, but don't wait for a prize, right? Don't wait for an outcome. Just do all the right things and the outcome will happen. Not always. Like, that's what I tell my parents. I'm like, why did you teach me that? That's That's not always true because then, yes, in the perfect world, that's what it would end with. But we don't live in a perfect world. We're, we're all not perfect. Everybody's so busy. Why are we expecting someone else to recognize what we do and then appreciate us for it versus us appreciating what we do and standing up for ourselves and getting what we deserve? Well, that's a very karma-esque uh, <laughs> view of things. Which, and I tend to think that way too. Um, I, I actually, I, gosh, I teach my own children. If you, know, if you do good, then good things happen. The focus is on doing good, not just on the thing. But to your point, that is certainly not always the case. <laughs> exactly. And and I'm I'm a big believer of karma, right? I, I mean, that's something that I teach the kids too, which is you want do all the right things. Do to others what you want others to do to you, right? Just, just you want to feel good when you go to bed. You don't want to just have to feel, you know, just like not feel good about what, what you do in terms of hurting others and things like that. So. I believe in all of that. I was, uh, you know, raised in a very religious family. So that's something that I, you know, live and breathe. But again, I think it's, there's two sides to every coin. And I think that's where you need to find the right balance that don't leave everything to luck or chance or, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so you mentioned that, that you have kids and we were chatting beforehand and that you have, you're, you're living the wonderful experience with two teenage daughters. And that's part of the experience of you're the CEO of a company, you're co-founder, you're all those things. So how how has that impacted your your journey and your decision making as well of balancing 
you know, that's important. You want to be a mom and those things. It It is. It is always a constant struggle, right? Because you have to work hard, but you want to be there for your family. You want to be there for the kids. Uh, my husband and I both are very, we're very professionally driven, right? But I do have, again, it's a female thing that comes in here. As a mother, you want to always do more. There's always, you know, guilt of a mother is a real thing. And you feel it every day. But at the end of the day, what I see in my girls is as they have seen me in this role, they know that I'm doing something that I'm very passionate about. And it sets an example for them, right? They want to do something big in life. They know they can do something big in life if they work hard and work towards it with that intention. So in my mind, I'm being a good role model for them where you have to, yes, there will be days when, you know, you you will feel like you can't have it all. And honestly, you can't have it all, but that's where you have to make the trade-offs and choices, right? I uh, tell this to my team all the time that I used to love to party before I had kids, but now you will never see me anywhere because I'm either working and then whatever extra time I have, I give it to my kids because that's where I find the joy, right? So that's where you pick what gives you the most joy and and you give you know spend time doing that i also believe that the quality of time is so much more important than the quantity of time so while i may not be spending hours and hours every day with them the time that i do spend with them i don't work i don't do anything i'm driving in the car i'm taking them to their tennis lessons or wherever i don't do conference calls at that time because that's my time with them and they want to talk to me and they get my 100% attention. So that's where it's it's just striking the right balance, Lenny. But yeah, the two teenagers, I'll say this, 14 and 16, it's easier to manage a 200-people company on a day-to-day basis. At least I know what to expect. But uh, the two teenagers that I have, I every day is some some new challenges that I had never known existed. So if you have any tips, advice, um, I'm all ears. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I became far more, far more religious by necessity being a parent <laughs> because I just pray a lot of, oh God, just please help me. You know, <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I don't know what to do with this. So, <laughs> so I'm glad that you're already, you know, that you have a foundation of faith because that's the only thing that gets me through often <laughs> with my kids. So. <laughs> Oh, well, I think the listeners are taking notes because uh, that might be helpful for them, whoever has teenagers coming up. It, it Maybe, again, literally saying, oh, God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's a prayer. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I'm usually just, you'll see me just staring at like blank space anytime they say something that doesn't make sense. And literally my kids could just go like uh, to mom. Are you, are you even like here in this room? Like, cause you're not reacting at all. You should be upset. And I'm like, I can't process so many things happening at the same time. Uh, and thank goodness that we don't have always on video metrics with our children. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that's the other piece you just, especially having older children now, adult children. It's like, I don't want to know. I, I don't want to know. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. That yeah, this is not a piece of information that I need to understand. So um, <laughs> this has been a great conversation, uh, but I want to be conscious of your time and, and our listeners. So let's circle back around to more of the, the researchy piece of things, because you, you know, you have built an innovative platform and we know technology is 
going to drive more usability and scale. It's, it'll decrease the barrier to entry. It will increase stickiness. We'll see greater acceptance and adoption of video technology and real-time behavioral insights as we go. What do you see next for Nailbiter? Making those, that those assumptions are true over the course of uh, the next two to three years. Look, I, uh, the two things I'm most excited about, which we launched this year, and I think are going to have a bigger and bigger impact over the next couple of years, right? The first one being we started using augmented reality. And that is a technology that we really, really believe in because it allows us to, again, make like, yes, virtual reality is a thing, but you need those goggles. Some of them cost $300 to do it. But with augmented reality, Again, you're using your smartphones, your iPhones and your Samsungs and any other brand that you use to look at things like the furniture in your house, right? How is it going to look? How is it going to sit? But that's the technology that within CPG and research now allows our clients to place products or their new packs in the store, on the shelf, bring it to real life so you can actually get more real reactions from consumers and shoppers. Looking at a flat file online as a concept or sending 50 people a product to test out at home, yes, those are all, again, good options to have. But the whole context, the real-world aspect of it is lost in that because you're you're kind of putting it in a little box. But in this case, by using augmented reality, we can now test products and ideas that are not present on the shelf today, are not present in the real world today, but you can expect to get some more real behavioral reactions, you know, versus waiting for it to actually make it on the shelf and then learn what went wrong and what worked and what have you. So I do believe augmented reality is a huge role to play in the future, right? When it comes to technology. The second thing that I'm excited about, it's my my favorite thing. So I, I want to make sure I just talk about it. It may not, it's not necessarily real related to technology, but what we have launched is our first syndicated product, which uncovers how, what people do impulsively. So until now, what we were collecting data on is anything that's on your list that you plan to shop, whether it's in store, whether it's online or whether you consume it at home. What nobody has been able to figure out or there's no good way to collect is what happens when something was not on your list and you're in the store or you're shopping online and you just see something and then impulsively end up buying it, right? So our syndicated platform is actually connecting that dots to give the consumer 360, shopper 360 to not just talk about what you plan to do, but also what drives impulse. How do your categories do or perform when it comes to impulse shopping? What can you do to drive more impulse amongst those shoppers? Are they displays? Are they promotions? Is it where they sit on the shelf, right? Things like that, which has been a burning question for our clients for the longest time. We just didn't have a good way to answer it. And now that we've cracked the code, I'm just psyched about the data that I'm seeing and the reception that I'm receiving from clients. Oh, that's fantastic. I, you know, confection companies. I mean, yeah. that is such a burning issue for them. We don't know why people buy candy at the shelf, right? Or at the checkout. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, have, we don't have any visibility into it. So that's fantastic. All right. So as we wrap up a little more just a, about you. So as a former aspiring VJ, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. what's, <laughs> what content 
are you most engaged with in your downtime? So is it, you know, music? Is it Game of Thrones? Whatever. What's uh, What are you paying attention to right now? It's very mindless surfing. I'll be honest. I follow people on Instagram who are posting things on the new ways to wear certain types of makeup or the new bags that have launched or what, you know, I was talking about this earlier. What are the, you know, in colors for fall 2022? I just like, it's not that I, you know, start buying things, but I'm just very much uh, very interested in fashion and very interested in what's in and what's not. So that's, that's something that I follow. I will watch with my kids. We try to find some shows that are kid friendly that we can watch together because then they want to discuss it and again spending time together so they'll find a show that the 14 year old the 16 year old and me can watch together and just talk about so yeah that's it's it's very I wish I had something more serious but life is serious enough so I just end up doing something that's more fun Uh, absolutely absolutely the when I have downtime the last thing I want to do is to think about all this other stuff (laughs) give, give me mindless and of course Actually, my wife and I have now recognized that we have reached the age where we can only watch anything for about 30 minutes because we don't start watching things till like 10. And by 1030, we're asleep. So <laughs> I literally on the couch. So one, one of us, usually both. So that means mindless entertainment because you can't watch anything with the plot because you're going to fall asleep midway through it. And so that's my life nowadays of, yeah, just. It's just something for me to fall asleep to now. So uh, anyway, so that's what happens when you have older kids, right? That That's what you have to look forward to. So there will come a point where you're just so exhausted with work and dealing with them that you just fall asleep on the couch. No, that I, I hear you. I think I'm getting there. Slowly, steadily, I am on my way there, which is where I've gone from long form videos and shows and things like that to like 30 second Insta Reels, right? That's... So eventually I'll make my way to uh, just not even being able to get through those. Yes, that, that's it. So it's the bite size, you know, the snack size content. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> All right. This has really been great. I hope to uh, to have you back and hear more about the developments of Nailbiter and talk more about, you know, diversity and in that journey as well. I'm glad that you're passionate about that. I assume that you're involved with Wire. My team is, I need to reach out and actually make it happen. So if you have any suggestions, I'd love to discuss them after this podcast, Lenny. Yeah, happy to do that. I can, I, I, I'm good buddies with Kristen Luck. Uh, happy to, uh, to connect you to her. And so let me know. And also many members of our team are as awesome. well. So we can make those connections happen. Uh, so where can people find you? LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm, I don't post a bunch of stuff on any social media channels i'm only consuming i'm not contributing in any way so uh, linkedin would be a good place to reach me as well as just my email address i guess amishi at nail-biter.com happy to hear from anyone anyone wants to discuss research i love talking data any day every day i'm all about it behavioral data especially as well as Yes, to your point, very passionate about diversity and would love to see more women leaders in our industry. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate you spending time with us. Appreciate our listeners for spending time with us. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation as much as uh, as I did. And I, I think Amishi enjoyed it as well. I um, did. I loved it. I can't wait to be back. Well, we will make that happen. I want to give a shout out to our producer, Natalie, to our editor, James. and our sponsor, Nailbiter, but that is not why we did this. So just to be clear, 
this was already set up. And then Amishi's team said, well, hey, can we sponsor him? We said, sure. But, but the conversation was going to happen no matter what. So thank you to everybody. Tune in next time for another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Until then, it's Lenny Murphy signing off. Hope that you guys are all well. Until next time. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.